If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, go on your phone. That's all right. Or any device you might have and pull it up. We started a series in the book of Acts back in the fall. We took a break over Christmas, but now it's time to jump back in. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it's the, it's the only historical sequel that we have to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the Gospels. These tell us of the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But what happened after Jesus died rose, and then ascended into heaven. The book of Acts tells us. In chapter 1, 1, verse, through chapter 2, verse 47, it's the first section of the book, and we might call it the birth of the church. Chapter 1 opens up, Jesus is alive from the dead. He's spending time with his disciples. He's giving them final instructions. He's, they say to him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know the times of the epics. Here's what I want you to know. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And then he ascended into heaven. And he had told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so in the latter part of chapter one, they do. They go back to Jerusalem, they gather together and they pray and they wait. And in chapter two, God fulfills his promise to send the Holy Spirit into the lives of his people. And it empowers them for witness. And Peter preaches about Jesus. And some 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus Christ. And they're all together. You can see it in 2.42. Continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And at the end of this section, down in 2.47, Luke gives us the summary the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so Christ ascends, sends his spirit to empower his people, and now we're off and running. Well, the next section is chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 7. And if the first section was the birth of the church in Jerusalem, this section is the expansion of the church in Jerusalem. I'll just briefly tell you what we're going to see over the next several weeks together. Peter and John are going to heal a lame man. And the crowds are going to come and Peter's going to preach Christ again. And yet the authorities there in Jerusalem aren't going to like it. They're going to take Peter and John, haul them in and say, what are you doing? And they're going to say, listen, this man was healed in the name of Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which, we, by which a man is saved. They're going to say, y'all have to quit preaching in this name. And they're going to say, listen, we have to obey God rather than men. And they're going to say, you better quit preaching or else. And they let them go. And Peter and John go back and they get their church family together. And they say, hey, y'all pray because here's what they told us. And they prayed. And they'll pray not that God will take their persecution away, but that God will give them courage in the midst of it. And he answers their prayer. And they continue to speak about Jesus. And the authorities will haul them in again and say, we told you to quit preaching in this name. And yet you have filled this city with this teaching. Well, that's a verse. Wouldn't you love that to be true here in our city? That through God's people, through the church here in Katy, that this city would be filled 
with this teaching. We told you to stop preaching in this name. And they said, well, we told you we had to keep preaching in this name. This time, they let them go, but before they let them go, they beat them and they flogged them. And these believers went out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And guess what they did? They kept telling people about Jesus. Until you get to the end of the section in chapter 6, verse 7, Luke gives us another progress report. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And so that's what we're going to see over the next several weeks as the gospel begins to expand within Jerusalem, and it will expand in the face of persecution. It will expand in the face of moral compromise, if you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it will expand even in the face of the threat of a false teaching entering into the church. So that's where we're headed. But we start this morning briefly, just in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Jesus Christ changes people's lives. In verse 1, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. If y'all will endure it, I'll endure it. All right? And try that one. If not, I'll lose the jacket. But y'all been telling me you like my jackets. So, so here's a lame man. Lame from his mother's womb. We find out in chapter 4, he's over 40 years old. They used to have to pick him up and carry him every day to the temple so that he could beg alms. Alms is just help. He would beg and people would give him some money or give him some food. When he saw Peter and John about to go to the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. He began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright, began to walk, and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. This man went from lame to leaping. Jesus Christ changed his life. Though Jesus was ascended to heaven and no longer there, he was continually at work through the lives of his people. 
in bringing his grace and his love and his kindness. And here this man experienced his life changing. I'm reading into the text and you'll have to decide what you will about it. I think this man probably had heard about Jesus. This is not long after Jesus has done his thing in Jerusalem and been crucified and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. This man would have been around all of those days. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would have certainly, it seems to me, have heard about Jesus. Maybe he had seen Jesus. Maybe he had seen some of the miracles. I'd like to think certainly he had heard about them. Maybe he had heard that Jesus had taken a man who was blind and given him sight, or a man who was deaf and allowed him to hear, a paralytic and allowed him to get up and walk. He had heard the stories. Probably he had heard of Jesus and his authoritative teaching. Probably, certainly, he had heard about his crucifixion. Probably he had heard about this rumor that this one who was crucified was alive again. And I wonder if in these days as his friends, as his family would pick him up and take him to the temple each and every day to beg alms if he wondered. I wonder if it could be true of me. And here he asks for alms and whether he knew who Peter and John were, I don't know. But they fixed his gaze on him. Look at us. I don't have silver and gold. And maybe, maybe at that moment his heart kind of sunk. That's what he's hoping for. But what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. And maybe at that, at that moment his heart leapt. Walk. I think he heard that name and said, He can heal me. And it gave him hope and he and he trusted and sure enough he was healed. Jesus changed his life. He's changed all of our lives, hasn't he? If you know him. Maybe he hasn't healed you in this drastic of a way. But I think these miracles are included not only in the time of Jesus, but through the apostles to not only remind us of what is to come in the age to come when all of our infirmities will be gone, but to point to the great power of Jesus to get at our greatest issues, issue, which is sin. That Jesus Christ can take us at that place where we are most lame from our mother's womb. We were born in sin. Separated from God. And unable to do anything about it. 
And yet God, through His grace and His love, sends Jesus Christ, His Son, to come and heal us at that deepest need. To live the holy life we couldn't live and to die upon the cross to pay the penalty for what we'd done and to rise victoriously from the dead. Arms open wide to any and to all who will humbly come to Him. And those of us who know Him have experienced it. Some of you have had a radical change. Maybe you were living far from the Lord in obvious ways. And yet when you came to know Jesus Christ, He radically changed you. Maybe pride just absolutely consumed you, but now that you've come to know Jesus, humility has really become the mark of your heart. Maybe greed was something that you had just consumed you, but you've come to know Jesus and He's worked in your heart and now you're one of the most generous people you can imagine. Maybe it was anger. That anger got the best of you and it ruined your life and it ruined the lives of those who were around you, but you came to faith in Jesus Christ and He, he worked a miracle in your soul. Not that you never struggle with anger anymore, but, but love has become the tenor of your heart. Maybe it was lust and immorality that you had just given yourself to, but now, through your faith in Jesus Christ and your relationship with Him, purity has come to mark more and more of who you are. Maybe it was a mean-spiritedness that has been turned to kindness. Maybe you were absolutely pursuing the stuff of earth when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you realized, I want to live for the stuff of heaven. Maybe yours is a testimony of deliverance, if you will. Others of you maybe have a, a story of preservation. If, if it's either deliverance or preservation, I, I put my mine over here. I don't have a gory story of great, great depths of sin to which I was delivered, though... Listen, I'm aware of my sin, and I'm aware that I needed forgiveness. But I think back, not so much I think back, I think of who I am and the inclinations of my flesh today, even as someone who's been saved now over 30 years, knowing the dark spots in my own soul, and I go, who would I be today if it wasn't for Jesus Christ? And it just makes me shake my head and it makes me smile. Because he has preserved me from so very much. I think I could paint a pretty good picture of who I would be today. Had it not been for the grace of God through Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus... You know that he's changed your life as he changed this man's life. And what's incredible about this is that when your life is changed, when my life is changed, or when we live the distinct life of Christ, the world often takes note. Look in verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. So this man 
goes from lame to leaping. Jesus Christ changes his life and everybody notices it. At least those who knew who he was. They saw him leaping and praising God. And they thought, isn't he the one who used to be lame? But now he's leaping. They took note of him. They recognized him as being the one who used to be lame. It begs the question for us, doesn't it? What about those who are closest to you and to me? What do they take note of? Those where you live, your family, your neighbors, those where you work, those where you play. What might they see in you and in me? Because the world is watching. When you and I make a profession to be followers of Jesus Christ, they watch even more. What do they take note of? Maybe you came to faith later in life, or maybe you came to faith in such a way that they knew you before you came to faith in Jesus. And now they know you after you came to faith in Jesus. And the question is, can they take note that there's been something beautiful that's happened in your life? Or maybe... You've been a Christian a long time and maybe they don't know or they didn't know you before you came to faith in Jesus. They've only known you since you've come to faith in Jesus. And I think the question is, do they notice something distinct about your life? One missiologist would call it a qualitative distinctiveness to your life. Do they see something different in you? A quality of life that is distinct from what they might see in the other lives around them. It could be that they could look at you and say, man, I, I knew that guy before he came to know Jesus. And now I've known him since he came to know Jesus. And I'm taking note, is that the same dude? Because, man, he has changed. And changed for the better. Boy, I knew that, that, that lady before she came to know Jesus, but she had, a, she had some sort of experience. She's, she's told me that she's now a Christian. And I'm not so sure what that means, but she's different than she used to be. Do they take note? Could they, can they recognize that something's different. To make the point again, maybe it's they didn't know you before you came to faith in Jesus. They only know you now. Can they look at your life and say, you know what? He claims to be a Christian. She claims to be a Christian. And I'm not so sure what all that means. But there's something different about him. There's something distinct about her
the gospel or gospel-changed lives can become a boon for the gospel, a benefit for the gospel. This man who was lame, is, his life is radically changed because of Jesus Christ. And those who knew him see it. They take note of it. And at the end of verse 10, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And then we'll see next week in verse 11 and following. As a result of this, Peter is going to be given an opportunity to proclaim Jesus. And he will point to Jesus as the one who makes the difference. The life that you and I live before a watching world is important. It can, it doesn't always, no doubt it doesn't always, but it can attract to the gospel. It can make the gospel look good. It can authenticate the gospel. It can make someone think, maybe this gospel is true. I'll give you some verses just to back it up. In Matthew chapter 5, that's a familiar one. You are the light of the world, Jesus said to his disciples. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do you light a lamp and put it under a bowl. But you put it up on the table so that it'll give light to all the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says to his disciples, let your light shine. Through what? Your good deeds. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, writing about that. What his disciples must show is their good works, i.e. all righteousness. Everything they are and do that reflects the mind and the will of God. Jesus says to you and to me, let your light shine. Your good deeds, all of the righteousness that you live. In your neighborhood, in your workplace, where you go. Let your light shine. Here's another one in Titus chapter 2. When Paul is addressing Titus and encouraging Titus to teach the older men in his church to live in a particular way and the older women to live in a particular way so they can teach the younger women to live in a particular way and the younger men to live in a particular way. Here are three phrases in the midst of that paragraph. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Titus teach. God's people to live a distinctive lifestyle, a godly lifestyle, a righteous lifestyle, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Implication, if you and I do not live holy lives before a watching world, the word of God will be dishonored. Here's another phrase that's used, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. I think in that context, the opponent is those around us who do not know Jesus, who think negatively of Christ and his gospel. And Paul is urging Titus to urge the people of God to live in such a way before the opponent 
in such a way that they will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. They're looking for something bad to say about us. They want to be able to say, there, told you. Here's another phrase that he uses. So that they, the people of God, will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Titus, teach God's people to live godly, righteous lives. Because in doing so, they make the gospel beautiful. They adorn cosmeto, cosmetics. They make the gospel look pretty. Here's another one in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are being marginalized now that they've come to put their faith in Christ and and they're following him. The unbelieving society is beginning to push them to the margins. They're being ostracized. They're being marginalized. Not yet physically persecuted yet. We don't think from First Peter. But, but certainly the pressures come. And here's what Peter says to them. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. In that context it means among the unbelieving world. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as an evildoer, a Christian, they may, on account of your good deeds, glorify your Father in the day of visitation. Hear it? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as an evildoer, they may, on account of your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. You almost think Peter was there when Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again in 1 Peter 3, to a group of Christians who were suffering, who were being pressured and persecuted, marginalized and ostracized because of their faith in Jesus. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I think that, that simply, that means just in your mind's eye, in your heart, sanctify him as Lord. Christ is my Lord. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. The implication is that you're living in such a way that it's, it's possible that they could be curious about the hope that you have even in the midst of your hardships. And they would ask you about it. Now, we love those opportunities when they come along. Maybe they don't come along much, but there it is. And he goes on, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The life that you and I live before watching world matters. Here this man was lame to leaping and all the people who used to see him are going, something happened to him. Wonder and amazement, and it gave an opportunity for the gospel. Pastor Bill Kynes writes about the quality of life of a Christian. He says this, and from that cross, 
the cross of Christ that, that becomes a, a standard for all who would follow Christ. And from that cross flows an appealing quality of life. Humble and compassionate, not self-promoting, but purposeful, contented, and full of a simple joy. Followers of Christ forsake the vain pursuit of money and worldly fame and lay hold of something far more satisfying. In relationships of love and care, the community that Christ creates by His Spirit at times displays glimpses of its future glory. An appealing quality of life. We need to close. But I say to you, brothers and sisters, those of you who know Jesus, let's, let's treasure Christ and let's walk in the power of His Spirit and by His grace live distinctive lifestyle, knowing that you and I are being watched. And that's an exciting opportunity to know that the world is watching. Men, they're watching how you talk about your spouse at work. They're watching how you conduct your business. They're watching all of us as we trust in the midst of our trials. They're listening to the speech that we use. If it's dirty or if it's clean, if it's filled with slander, gossip, or if it's kind and gracious. They're watching. They're listening. And by the grace of God, as you and I live and let our light shine, it can be a boon, a benefit to the gospel that some might be attracted and at least curious. What are those around me Think about Christ in light of the life that I live. Man. So proud of my wife these days as she's going through her trial. And Facebook provides you an opportunity to do things you never could. But just her little posts of things and to see the comments from the school that she works at the front office staff that she works most closely with, all of the teachers, and even the parents. I'm proud of her. In the midst of her trial, she's, she's, by His grace, doing her very best to treasure Christ. And it is distinctive, apparently so. Apparently so. When you go through hardship, people are watching, especially as you've made a claim to know and follow Jesus Christ. They're watching us. They're watching you. I close with this. I always think about this. It's fun. I was, I was in college at a Campus Crusade Christmas conference. My old pastor at Denton Bible Church was the speaker at this Christmas conference, and he shared 
an illustration. He said, hey, listen, assume you're going through the supermarket line and there in the line at the supermarket are all of the magazines right there in front of you. And assume on one of those magazines you see cure for cancer has been found. Do you get excited? Maybe, maybe not. The question is, which magazine cover is it on? Back in those days, Maybe, maybe the dry lines are a little clearer. I don't know. But he said, is it on the cover of U.S. News and World Report? If so, you might pick it up and say, oh my goodness, what's been found? But if it's on the cover of National Enquirer, what do you do? And just keep on moving. Why? Because National Enquirer, zero credibility. And then he looked at all of us and he said, what magazine cover are you and the life that you live? Because we go out into a world and we proclaim that God, the second person of the Trinity, has become a man in the virgin womb of his mother Mary, lived a holy life, died upon a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the world, three days later, rose from the dead, then ascended into heaven. He's there right now and will one day come again to establish his rule over all the earth. That's quite a message. What magazine is it on? What life is it coming from? Is your life U.S. News and World Report? That someone would hear that crazy message and go, maybe there's something to it. Or is your life such, such national inquire that they would hear that message and go, I'll pass. This man, is he the same guy? Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us as we head out these doors in just a moment and head on back home and throughout the week spread out all over this city and all over Houston. We go out as the children of God into a watching world. We go out as those who've made a claim to be Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you empower us and help us to let the light of Christ shine in the attitudes that we carry, in the words that we speak, in the actions of our lives. May the light of Jesus Christ shine brightly through us. And Lord, would you do a supernatural work in the men, women, and children that surround us and are watching would you draw them? Would you draw them? Would you do the invisible work that you must do to make, to make them curious? Would you give us opportunities to be able to tell them about Jesus? We'll pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for the few extra minutes. Sorry about that. You are loved and you are dismissed. I hope you have a wonderful week.